All right. Hello and welcome everyone to another InventRight live stream. My name is Andrew Kraus. I'm one of the co-founders here at InventRight. Our other co-founder is Stephen Key. What does InventRight do? We've been coaching and mentoring inventors for the last 23 years. Yes, over two decades. And we've had students in over 65 countries because you can do this from anywhere. Um, licensing is a great business model because you don't need to raise money. You don't need to hire employees. And you don't need to start a business. You just need to license it or rent your idea to a very large company or a medium-sized company. And they already have all that. They have the money, they have the workforce, and they have the existing distribution. What I mean by that is they're already in, you know, 10,000 stores and on Amazon or what have you. So it's a beautiful thing. Now, you need to know how to do that. And that's what we specialize in. You need to know how to protect yourself and you know how to present your product. You know how to do your research, how to get out to companies, close licensing deals, and then move on to your next product. And that involves a lot more than just, and usually doesn't involve or shouldn't involve running out and spending a ton of money on a patent and a prototype because quite often that's not necessary. Sometimes you need to do those things. Quite often you don't. And you learn about a lot of that here at InventRight. We teach you guys to do this cost effectively, okay? So I think, I think that is going to be my theme today, how to do inventing on a budget. So I'm going to answer your guys' questions, but I'm always going to try to like bring it back today about how to do inventing on a budget. So let's do that. That's going to be like the topic for today. So when, when we put the, the recording of this up, it's going to be how to do it on a budget. And yes, I just came up with that like literally right there <laughs> on the fly there. Um, this is good to have a topic too. All right. So, uh, Mike, this first question, uh, how do InventRight coaches communicate with foreign students that don't speak any English? Okay. So they don't. Now we've had students in over 65 countries, had a lot of students that had um, limited English or just okay English. But if you don't speak a word of English, how are you going to do this? Right. Um, now that doesn't mean you can't license a product. But we can't like have a, a Skype conversation or a phone conversation and coach somebody if you're not speaking the same language, right? Um, if we drop them an email or giving them some email advice in addition to the coaching advice on the phone call or Skype, and they're not understanding, you can't read it, and they're just putting everything in Google Translator and then putting everything back for English and it's a terrible translation, that's too much of a difference. So we've had it, although this is what I'm going to say, we've had tremendous numbers of students where English their English skills were just okay, or they were pretty good, but it's not their first language. You can totally do this. You do not need perfect English skills to do this. And you don't need English skills at all to license. But if you're reaching out to English-speaking countries and you can't talk on the phone and you can't message them, you know, that's, that's kind of difficult, right? And so, yes, we do cater to an audience that speaks English at least to some degree. Now we do have, we did have one fluent uh, coach that was fluent in both English and Spanish. And now we have a coach that's pretty good at Spanish and uh, he'll talk um, like, you know, like Spanish to them and then a little English and a little Spanish, but if something gets confusing, maybe they'll go to Spanish because they understand a little bit better. Uh, but we don't have any other language uh, besides English and Spanish. Now, if somebody said, I can't read a word of English, everything's, I would say, no, it's still, you can't do that because all our trainings are in English, right? Um, but you do not need to be a perfect English speaker by any means. I have some students that are pretty limited English, 
but they kind of get it. And sometimes uh, I've noticed the issue sometimes is they say, yes, yes, okay, okay, and they weren't really getting it. So the coaches will go like, okay, explain it back to me. Let's make sure. Because sometimes you're a little insecure if it's not your first language, and you just say yes, and you shouldn't have said yes. You should have said no, said it to me again. I still don't understand. So, but we're we're pretty good at that. But you gotta you gotta have some English skills. Um, Mike's other question: If a company licenses a product and it's still patent pending, the company can still sell it? Question mark. Absolutely. Um, I thought a PPA couldn't be made public within a year. No, that's not true at all. Not true at all. So. The approach that we take now, plenty of people come to us having already filed patents. Fine, we'll work with that. But once people become students and they're working on a second or third project, we we guide them to say, and or people that are our fans that haven't filed patents yet, we save them some money. File a provisional patent application. Use our smart IP software. Have the coach guide you on talking about, you know, fitting in with the marketplace. Does your product make sense? considering these other products in the marketplace. It needs to make sense. And then you're going to file a provisional patent that protects those features that are actually marketable. Protecting features that aren't marketable is a god-awful waste of time. So we guide people in a non-legal way, and then the software that we developed with patent attorney Gene Quinn kind of guides them to do the rest, and they file a provisional patent. It used to be $75, now it's $60. They, As of January 1st, they lowered the rate. So you guys save $15, big deal, who cares? Um, but that's nice. Um, so what, what, when you file a provisional patent application, it's like a stake in the sand. And so I, I understand what Mike is saying here. If you file a provisional patent, you can start talking about it. You're saying, hey, look, I'm protecting A and B from this date. Okay. Now, if you start making public disclosures, like putting it up on a website, um, selling it at a swap meet, if you don't file a full utility within that year the provisional gives you and reference that provisional citing its date, then you're going to lose that date and you might have some public disclosure. Now, most people believe if you're privately showing it for a license, you didn't publicly disclose it, you privately emailed it to a company, that that's not considered public disclosure. In that case, that there would be a benefit um, in not having public disclosure. So let's say, now, first of all, a year is a lot of time to go fishing with a provisional patent. So that should be enough. Sometimes, occasionally it's not, usually because the inventor, usually it's a non-invent right student. You didn't really know how to reach out. The time just ticks away and people freak out and go, oh my God, I'm gonna lose my rights. No, you can just file that provisional again. Now. You don't get that date. You get the new date. If somebody filed in that period of time, that difference, you know, then they might be have preference. Now, I have never, ever seen that in the 23 years we've been doing InventRight. Could it happen? Yes. Have you ever seen it happen? No. Okay. Is that worth $10,000 to file a full utility? In my opinion, for me, not 99% of the time. Okay. So, but now Mike is misunderstanding. He's saying like, Okay, if I file a PPA and a company starts to sell it, that's public disclosure, which is right. That's public. That's not what he said. But it's public disclosure. You don't need when you file a full utility patent. Okay, let's let's back up here. It takes one to three years for the patent office to get back to you. One to three years typically. Okay, so you license it to a company, and the company is like, "Oh yeah, we can get this launched in ten months." Are you going to wait two years for the patent issue before you? No, hell no. Your provisional patent 
is that stakeholder in the sand. You file the full utility and you can, you can license products by saying patent pending. And you can do that with a provisional where you say patent pending, or you can do it with a full utility where you say patent pending. So if the company cares, Mike, about patents, they're, they're probably going to give you the money. Well, this is the way we're going to guide you. They'll give you the money. You're going to file a full utility. Okay. And you're going to reference the provisional and they're just going to start selling it. They're not going to wait for the patent issue. That'd be freaking ridiculous. This perception that you can't license something without a patent or the patent needs to be issued. No patent pending is just fine. And whether that's a provisional or a utility. Okay. So hopefully that's helpful, but no, you, you, it's not true that you can't make your product public because you filed a provisional for that one year. Now, you, as, a, as, as an inventor, when you're licensing, you don't need to. Don't post it on Facebook, wanting to get 100 people liking it. It doesn't mean anything. It means nothing. They, they didn't even buy it. You don't have it ready for sale. Don't do that stuff. Privately show it for license. 99% of patent attorneys I've talked to say, look, that's not considered public disclosure. Okay. And then you will give you the right to file a provisional again. Okay. So that's what we were saying. We weren't saying that you can't make public disclosure of it because if you licensed it and you're like, maybe you want them to sell it, maybe you're filed a provisional, you get it early on, and you got another six months left on your provisional and they're starting to sell it. You still have a period of time to wait to file a full utility and you'll still get your priority date from the time you file that provisional. And you can do that. So it gets really confusing with these timelines, guys. You almost need a chart, but. Hopefully that's helpful, Mike. So yes, it, it, you don't need to make public disclosure when you're licensing. Okay, Mike, so don't worry about it. If you have, if you file a PPA and you make public disclosure, you know, you're toast after that year, right? So, but you don't need to when you're licensing. That's what we're always teaching people. Um, let's see what else we got here. Um, so again, the theme kind of today is going to be, my camera tripped out, there we go. Um, the theme today is going to be saving money. And so what I was just telling you there is definitely saving you money. Okay. Everything. I'm going to answer your guys' questions, but I'm always going to try to make it like a theme for today. Like, okay, let's figure out how to save money. All right. Um, their handle is, they're regular. Their handles don't touch me, which I love, which is hilarious, which I say every time. Hi, Andrew. What are some must-have contract terms? Does InventRight offer free resources regarding contracts, videos, and articles? Thank you for everything. Looking forward to getting a contract signed and being one of your videos to show how easy it can be with your help and resources. Thanks a ton. So knowing a few contract terms isn't going to get you a licensing deal. It's just going to make you dangerous. I will share a few important licensing contract terms with you here. And, you know, don't touch me as your handle. If you Go to if you go to like the InventRight channel and you type in negotiations. Have we done videos about negotiations or licensing contracts? You can find videos about that. Um, you can go to our websites. Go to the go our website InventRight. Click on free resources. Tons of articles and stuff there. So yeah, you can find information about contracts and general advice and some of the stuff I'm going to share with you right now. Um, but if you think just like oh, if I just know those key terms, that'll be enough. No, you're going to muck up the deal, guaranteed. Okay, it's not enough. You need to know a lot more. That's why even when our coaches, when our students have a coach and they're guiding them through the entire process, when it gets into the negotiation phase, we got one coach, Paul. We put them on with Paul and Paul guides them through it. 
okay? Because it's that delicate. Now, when a student's been through that with Paul once or twice, they start to get the vibe because they're experiencing it firsthand. They're like, I kind of got it from here, but that's what you need. You, even our students that watch our trainings on negotiations, that is not enough. And if you hire a licensing attorney, boy, that is a mistake, okay? That's not legal advice. I'm not telling you not to hire an attorney. I'm actually gonna tell you to hire an attorney right now as a disclaimer, but licensing attorneys, they they don't know how to close licensing deals. Is that a weird thing to say? Um, they try to nitpick. First of all, they just want to work with a contract. Most of licensing is getting initial interest and moving it forward. Let's talk about the manufacturing a little bit. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about the product. Let's talk about changing some of the features. You think a licensing attorney is going to help you with that? No. That stuff is way more important than the contract. Because if you do that stuff right, you'll get to a contract. If you muck up that stuff, you will not get to a contract. So you don't like go, oh, they email me back. Oh, okay, I'll call my licensing attorney and they'll start negotiating. Hell no. You'll kill 80% of the deals you would have closed if you do that. Do not do that. Now, when you do get a licensing attorney, you know, quite often they'll start nitpicking the deal to death. And the more they nitpick it to death and create these argumentative points, the more billable hours they get, right? And so now I'm not saying all licensing attorneys will do this, but you want the way that we utilize licensing attorneys, we help our students. Our negotiation coach, Paul, helps guide the student, tells the student what to say back to the company. Them and their attorneys make changes. You're under no obligation. You're not signing anything. So then when the deal, the deal is like 95% done, Paul will say, okay, I've helped you go back and forth with all these clauses and things, but you should never sign a contract without a licensing attorney looking at it. Have an attorney dot the I's and cross the T's and review your contract. So that's the way we work but they're too abrasive. They're trying to get billable hours. They're clunky. They're awkward. They're argumentative. You get their attorney, your attorney arguing, you're screwed. Like you will close so few deals and you worked really hard to get that deal and you want to do that. So now when our students have been through a deal or two and they have those skills, they'll do the same thing, but without our help, they'll do it on their own. They'll get the deal to like 95% done. And they'll even revise the contract, have them change it. They know the major deal points, some of which I'll talk about now. Um, and, and then they'll hire an attorney, again, only when a deal is 95% done. And you do not let that licensing attorney talk to the company. You let them review the contract that's 95% done, which if, at that point, you understand things so well, there's not much left to do. You know, But you always want a licensing attorney to dot the I's and cross the T's. So it sounds like I'm beating them up, and I am but I'm also going to tell you they're great to look over a final contract. They might say, well, you know, change this one word, change this one sentence, but it will cost you more to do one deal with licensing training than we charge for entire six months of coaching to help you with everything. So, and, and we're much more likely to get you into a deal than any licensing attorneys. They don't do deals. They don't do that. They, they review contracts. Um, and, never think that, oh, I got some interest. So now I'm going to ask for the contract or I'm going to do a contract. Hell no. You got to move it to that point. There's a process. There's a deal flow. Licensing attorneys do not understand that deal flow. Um, sometimes because they're, they're like working corporate to corporate and, you know, and they're doing that. And there's, it's a whole different vibe that doesn't work for an independent inventor to a corporation. Um, so you wanted some of the terms. So you always want an exit clause, a, perf a, a performance clause. Let's use the right. You always want a performance clause. You cannot 
enter into a licensing agreement, people, without a performance clause. So whether that's tied to a certain uh, royalty rate or a certain amount of units sold per quarter, usually, um, sometimes, you know, they're paying you per quarter, but they're going to look at the year on how much it added up to, or they got to meet certain uh, uh, minimum guarantees or performance guarantees per quarter or per year. But you have to have that. If they're not performing, you can take it back. There's a lot of alternative um, ways of doing that. You could you could say, okay, well, you don't have to pay me the minimum guarantees, but I have the right to take it back. But these numbers typically for minimum guarantees are a fraction of what you know they can sell. If you ask for really large minimum guarantees, so, so minimum guarantees, so let's say um, on the very first quarter, you're going really easy on them and they only have to sell 5,000 units, 10,000 units the second quarter. So let's say, but you you think they can sell 50,000 units, but you're only asking 10. You're asking a fraction of what you know they can sell. That can work. But if you ask like, oh, I, I think they could probably do 50,000, so I'll ask for 50,000. That puts too much pressure on them. Now, if they sell 50,000, you're going to get royalties for 50,000 units. But if they sell, if they sell less, then they pay less. But Let's say the minimum guarantee is 10,000 units and they sell 8,000. So what would that mean? That means that they need to pay you for 10,000. They need to pay you a royalty on units that they didn't sell. But those were such abysmally low levels that basically what minimum guarantees should be used for is not to put the screws to them. It's to go, God, if you're operating at that level long term, you're not even going to want this product anymore. And this is a way you can kind of pitch it to them. So I need to be able to take that back. And if they argue, you go, well, would you even want to keep selling at that rate? No. Well, that's a good minimum guarantee. So it gives you a mechanism. And there are can be other mechanisms too, to take it back. Now, do you want to be taking back products from companies you license to all the time? No, you want to give them an opportunity, maybe even make a suggestion, maybe say this or say that. And if they're faltering on their contractual terms, it gives you a chance to renegotiate the licensing agreement. Like, oh, you know, you've defaulted on the licensing agreement. Um, we can renegotiate that. I want to give you guys a chance, you know. Um, so you you don't just sit around waiting to pull it because they've invested tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars, depends on the product, in this product. They've educated their sales team. They got the manufacturing. They did all that work. Do you want to like, because they had one bad quarter, like pull it from them? That would be idiotic on your part, you know. But if they failed to launch it, and that's another thing you can put in there. They got launched by a certain date or they're failing to sell a certain amount. You have to be able to take it back. I talked to inventors outside InventRight, people usually that haven't been watching us. And, they, and they're like, I signed this licensing agreement, Andrew. And, and uh, they're, they're not even started selling yet. I'm like, well, what stores do they sell in? They're like, uh, like what do you mean? Uh, you don't know what stores they sell in? You did a licensing deal with them. Well, I don't know. They sell here and there. They're pretty big. I'm like, what? Like, and what are, I said, what are the minimum guarantees? And they're like, what's that? And I'm like, well, they have to sell a minimum amount. Otherwise you can take it back. They're like, I don't know. I'm like, what does it say in your contract? I don't know. I just signed the contract they sent me. I'm like, what? You know? So anyway, don't be an idiot. Don't be stupid. Don't like you, you just to give you some perspective. You never, we have never had one single contract ever where the company sent it, they're not trying to be deceptive or anything. Company sent it to the inventor. 
And we're like, that's good to go. Just sign that ever. Okay. Sometimes it's just a few things that change. Sometimes there's a lot of things that change. And a lot of things that change just fine. You talk about it, you work it out. Um, they will often include, not include very important things. So when vendors just go and sign licensing agreements without talking to a licensing attorney, now then they talk to a licensing attorney and then the attorney starts arguing, no, you can't have this, can't have that. And before you know it, they spent four grand with a licensing attorney and the deal's dead. You know, so you got to have a conversation about it in a very friendly way. And Paul, our negotiation coach, will quite often say like, okay, we're going to say this and this back. And they'll probably say this and then you're going to say this. And and the student comes back to our negotiation coach, Paul, like, holy crap, it happened just like you said. And he's like, yeah, I see the pattern. It always is like that. Or he'll he'll talk to you about the company. You'll kind of he'll get a vibe. Oh, they sent that via email. They sent. OK, here's where their head's at. Here's how we're going to deal with it. So. Um, just to say, uh, here are a few terms that are important and now you have enough to do a negotiated deal. No, but I did talk about one really, really important minimum guarantees, performance clauses, very, very important. I could, I could, we could give God a really long webinar on that one. Um, my two cents is their handle says, if you have a mechanical game, do you put both the info about the mechanical part and the rules in the PPA and not have to copyright the rules? Okay. So most of the time with games, like a board game or a car game, you're not going to be doing a provisional patent application. Now you can, I'll explain. It's a weird, weird advice that no attorney would give you, but I'm going to give you because it makes a lot of sense. Most of the time when you have a game, you're going to copyright the rules. Now, copyright is automatic. If you just put a little C with a circle around it, when I give a talk, this is talk is automatically copyrighted. If somebody got up and gave this exact same talk word for word, I said, you're in violation of my copyright. I could, wouldn't do that. But um, so copyright's automatic. So copywriting the rules is great protection for a board game or a car game or some sort of game or something like that. Um, so I, I, you should always do that. So you just give them the rules because if it's a game, you're going to give them the game and you're going to give them the rules and just make sure it says copyrighted on it and has the date. Okay, free. Now you can pay the comp the um, government organization that handles copyright. It's called the Library of Congress, not the Patent Office, because the Patent and Trademark Office, not the Patent, Trademark, and Copyright Office. The Copyright Office is the Library of Congress. So you can pay the Library of Congress. I don't know, it's 100, 200, something like that. I forget what it is. And you can file it. Do I find that to be necessary? Is this legal advice? No. Um, no, I don't. I think it's a waste of time. Now, sometimes if you have a whole ton of stuff, I believe I deal with copyrights not that much. You can throw a whole bunch of crap into one copyright application, and that can kind of make sense. Um, but, like, personally, if I had a board game, would I pay the money to the Library of Congress to copyright it? There? Hell no. I just put the little C, copyright, and put the date there. I And I wouldn't even blank i'd be fine with that because then you're creating a paper trail you're emailing it to them you're showing them that it's copyrighted you have the email it's all documented right okay and that's not legal advice so please seek the service of an attorney if you're looking for legal advice so now some games if it is like mousetrap do you guys remember that old game called mousetrap where there's all these physical moving things if it has functionality and utility you could file a provisional patent on it because you can get later a utility patent on it. But even if it had no functionality and utility, if you wanted to, you could spend 60 bucks, you could use our smart IP software and you could file a provisional patent on it. But really with games, now you have a mechanical 
a mechanical part in this game. So it might make, it's a mechanical game, you said. So it might make, it would probably make a lot of sense to file a provisional as well. So I would file a provisional in your case. And I would also just do, just put copyright on your rules. It's just that simple. Okay. Um, but some of you don't have a mechanical game. It's just a board game or something like that. And you can still go ahead and file a provisional patent if you want to. I don't think it's going to protect you very much if it doesn't have functionality and utility, but your, your copyright will protect you great. And the, guys, this is only for people with games, okay? Uh, if you got like a kitchen cutting board or you got an automotive product or you got something for the home or in industry, whatever, guys, you aren't copywriting all your stuff, okay? This is specific to games. It's a unique situation. All right, let's move on. Uh, you're welcome. Pre uh, I don't mind. Uh, wow, we got a lot of questions here. Um, so our theme today is saving money. So I think I just saved him money there. Um, and so every when I answer all these questions, I'm going to try to save you guys some money. Uh, Kurt said, hello, everyone. Hello, Kurt. Uh, Chad, who's one of our InventRight students, actually. Hey, Andrew, I just spoke with my licensee today. He has spent sent my signed contract over to ownership to be reviewed and signed. Oh, great. He thought they would have the product available on the market early this summer. And your experience is that is that a typical length of time from a contract to signing to the market release? Okay, it's not uncommon at all for them to take a year before the product hits the market. Imagine this. Let's say they're getting it made overseas. That can take a little while to, let's say their engineering team, they want to, their design team wants to refine it a little bit, make it a little prettier, stuff like that. Let's say that takes two months. I'm just making up a random scenario here. Three months, maybe. Okay. And they send it over to Asia. They got a contract manufacturing over there they like to use. And then they got to do some things. That's another month. And then they're going to manufacture it. That's a, that's a, it takes two more months to get in the pipeline. What are we at now? Five, six months. And then it takes another month to get over here, okay? Hits the docks. Now they got to start getting it in the stores. So that would be an incredibly fast timeline. And that's the timeline we're working on if it's this summer. If you said this summer, that's a great timeline. But it wouldn't be unusual for it to be a year or a year and a half. Um, it's just, it takes a while. These are big companies launching things on a huge scale, and they got a lot of other products in the pipeline. The thing is, once that pipeline starts flowing, then you're doing well. And you would pretty much expect quite often that first quarter, your sales are going to be lower, right? Because, you know, the salespeople, the manufacturer's reps are manufacturing, they're repping the company, talking to retailers and stuff. You know, they start to show it to companies and then it starts to get into stores. Another retailer notices over here. Oh, they got that product. Okay. Maybe they reach out to the manufacturer's rep. And go, hey, I want that too. Or it takes a while for the salespeople to get to all their clients, you know, to get to all the buyers at different retailers. This isn't an overnight thing, but it's so much faster than you ever launching the product on your own. That is freaking fast. So um, what is the, the absolute fastest I've seen? Probably like two months. Um, that would be insanely fast. Um, what is like brutally slow? Like, oh, crap. Like, well, actually... Um, I was just uh, chatting with a, uh, a, an in inventor uh, via email and he was, he was a little upset. They just launched it in December and I think he licensed it two years ago. Now, is that typical? No, no, but it happens sometimes. 
Um, and you move on, you license other products. But also in the contract, we were talking about contracts earlier. You can set that up. You can set it up. You can tell them and it, where, you know, they've got to, it's got to hit the docks by this date. It's got to be in the stores by this date or whatever. That could be another contractual term that you have. But, um, you know, I, I would say a year is about average. It can definitely be a little bit more than a year. Could be a little under. So, Chad, I would say this summer is rocking it. Because what, what are we? Um, February, March, April, May, June. Is, is summer June? Let's say July. So that's six months. So um, they're just about to sign now, and they're saying they get in the stores in six months. That is great. That is better than average. Okay. Now, what, when can products arrive in six months or, or less? You know, um, let's say it's a sewn product where they just have to die cut the fabric and they're sewing it. There's no injection mold to be made. That, that can happen faster. It can happen faster. But let's say they're like, oh, our, our designer is kind of busy with these other two products. He's not even going to be touching this for three months. And then we'll get up and running. And then they ended up launching it under six or something like that. So um, I would say the range, I would say you're doing really well at six months there. Um, eight months to about 14, 15 months. It, it, but it varies tremendously. You know, and that's just normal. But if anybody's like, oh, that's taking too long. That's ridiculous. I can launch it today. Yeah, you can sell on Etsy. You can put on Amazon. Nobody's buying it. And then three years later, you're selling like one thousandths of what they're going to sell because they're going to blow it out big because they're a big company. So put it in perspective. Sometimes people say that. And I'm like, really? Like, what are you thinking? Um, but that's that's the real business world. So I, I you know, Chad, you're, you're rocking it at six months there. Um Hmm. Waleed says, hi, Andrew, if the marketing manager doesn't reply, we typically tell people to reach out to marketing managers. Uh, can I approach the CEO? Uh, I wouldn't first. I would approach I would approach two or three or four marketing managers. I would approach other people first if nobody's getting back to you before you go with the CEO. CEO is OK if it's a very small company. That might be OK. But I would prefer that you would go with multiple marketing managers over the CEO. But let's say you reach out to three or four marketing managers and you've been doing that for um, four months and you've got crickets and then, okay, whatever, what the hell, reach out to the CEO, perfectly fine. Um, probably not gonna be a different response if they're not responsive, but also reach out on LinkedIn, reach out via email, reach out a phone. Most people that aren't our students are not pushing hard enough. Even our students try to slack off a little bit sometimes and they don't push, not Chad, Chad's rocking it. I've seen Chad in action. But, you know, uh, a, a coach will have a meeting with a student and the student's like, ah, oh, you know, this isn't working. Um, I'm not I'm not hearing anything back. And the coach is like, well, tell me how many you reached out to and how many times. And it's like they got 30 companies that reached out to 15 like once. I'm like, OK, you're just getting started, you know. But if you guys are like, oh, that's so daunting. I got to reach out two, three times and they're not going to respond to me. This is normal. It's not, it shouldn't stress you out once you get used to it. So what? You need to send a LinkedIn message more than once, email more than once. You give them a call, talk to a gatekeeper, ask if you can get through to their voicemail. So what? It's no big deal. And if you approach it that way, but if you just sit there thinking about the ones that haven't responded rather than keep getting out, then, you know, then you're, you're then people, but most people, even our students, but then the reason why you see success from our students all the time, the coach will then go, no, your head's not on straight. This is what you need to do. 
this is normal. Oh, it's normal. Oh, okay. I guess I won't get upset about my favorite company not getting back to me after my first outreach. Another funky place where people get upset. First, there's the initial outreach. You're asking permission to send your sell sheet or video. And then, then people will get, they'll, they'll get that permission. They'll say, yeah, sure. You can send me your sell sheet. They'll send it and they get all upset if they're not getting back to them in two days or two weeks. And I'm like, why are you getting upset? But they said they would look at it. They forgot about it. They're busy. They're in their inbox got really full. They said that you sent it. They got a hundred more emails. You got to send it again. So people don't only get upset about not being able to get to the person to say yay or nay, to, you can send me something. But they get upset when they say yes. And they think like now this is this marketing managers like that's the only thing they're doing. You know, so sometimes it's not uncommon. They said, yes, send me your sell sheet and you'll need to resend it two, three, four times and they'll finally get back to you. And I, students close their license deals all the time that way. Uh, and they'll, sometimes they're like, oh, I'm really sorry. I've been super busy. And, you know, they're just busy. There's people like you and me. That's all it is. Um, uh, made like men is, is their handle. How can we find companies that are trustworthy or willing to accept con contract inventors? Okay. I guess you just mean... Inventions from the outside or inventors. Um, I don't think you really need to worry that much about them being trustworthy. Like, why are we? Why are inventors so worried about that? You filed your provisional patent application. You made your list of companies, and all these companies are in big stores where you want to be, and you're going to reach out to them. Like, if you want to bother, you know, with all 30 companies, to me, I think it's a waste of time. You know, you could type in XYZ company lawsuits or ripoff or whatever, and you can see what comes up. It's a complete and utter waste of time, if you ask me. Now, the other thing is also um, a waste of time, if you ask me. Willing to accept. Why do you need to know that? You ask permission to send it. They say yes or no. You'll find out if they're willing to accept. There's no magical way to find out if that particular marketing manager at that particular company is, is open to receiving ideas from independent inventors, you just ask them. That's how you find out. So, but I think the reason why people ask that like all day long is because you don't want to get a no. You just quit right now if you don't want to get a no. Quit right now. Just throw in the towel, go screw this inventing thing, tell your spouse, you know, uh, Andrew said I should just stop wasting my time. If, if you're not willing to get a no, you're in the wrong game. You have to be willing to get a no. And um, so don't you don't need to find ones that are inventor friendly. That's just crap. Um, the trustworthy, if you're like do a DRTV product, I mean, those guys are sharks, the infomercial DRTV people. Would I Google the name of the company and see? But you're going to find dirt on all of them, to be honest with you. Those are the just the infomercial business. With any other industry, most companies are really honest, but if you think you're just going to find dig up dirt to see if they're honest, you could find to see you. If you see a company and they have really uh, deceptive marketing, it's like but these aren't the types of companies you guys license to 99 times out of 100. It's like, whoa, why is this company? And wow, there's tons of complaints about the way they handle their customers. Like, well, that might be a red flag for me. You know, uh, might just be a category where a lot of people complain. Right. Like 
you will never find, if you look at any review for an internet service provider, you'll just see pages and pages and pages of people saying how horrible their internet service provider is. There is no internet service provider that people like. There isn't one. Same thing with cell phone companies, people will claim. So you got to look at that factor too. But don't, if you're constantly looking to go, oh, I need to know 100%, they're super friendly and they're going to accept my ideas. Like, you just submit and you find out, you know? So that's my take. Um, to Hello, Robert. Robert said, hello, Stephen Hooley. Uh, hey, Andrew, thank you for doing these every week. Has anyone in EventRight ever licensed the same product to two different companies, one that sells B2B and the one that sells B2C? Yeah, you can absolutely. I've seen so many of our students have products they're working on where I'm like, oh, you don't have one product, you have five, you have three. It could be done like this for this industry, this for that industry, or this for the it's same industry, but a different distribution channel. And then another distribution channel over here. Maybe maybe it's the, almost less the exact same product, but it's marketing slightly different. Maybe it's a slightly different version of the product. Maybe it's a high and low price point. But here's the rule of thumb that I always say, I've said this ad nauseum over the years they can't be stepping on each other's toes. So if you sell this new cool kitchen cutting board and you think this is, this is rookie inventing 101 misthinking. If you think, well, I'm gonna license this to five companies because I'm gonna make more money if I license it to five companies than one, you're in for a world of hurt. Now, it might make sense and I'll explain that in a minute. But if two companies are selling kitchen cutting boards and they're selling it Walmart and Bed Bath and Beyond and Amazon, they're going to be stepping on each other's toes. You're not giving one an advantage over another. Now, here's what people don't get into perspective. Well, I'll, I'm going to license this to everybody and everybody's going to beat my door down because this is a great idea. I'm going to license it to five companies. Well, if you don't give one company a leg up over the others, there's nothing unique about it anymore. All right. So you're not going to license the exact same product to the same company selling right on the same shelf at Walmart makes no sense but they're big they're at freaking walmart don't be goddamn greedy you know i'm swearing today just get your guys' attention don't be greedy why you would think you're gonna license to five companies are all gonna sell the same thing at walmart that's not how it works okay and be really happy you license this big ass company that's at walmart and amazon bed bath beyond here and here like be happy with that okay now in steven's case if you had a uh business to business or business to consumer version of it. And it's slightly different version. It's marketed differently. And as long as they're not stepping on each other's toes, maybe it's a different price point. Maybe it's the exact same freaking product, but the, the, the business users wouldn't find it at Walmart. They would find it over here in this place. And let's say it's for uh, plumbers or whatever. And it's a heavy duty version of it or whatever. As long as they're not hurting each other, you can license it to more than company, more than one company. I've also seen people like, I'm like, oh, you don't have one product. You got three. You could license it for tennis over here, for soccer over here. Terrible example, but you get the idea. And I'm like, but it would be done differently. It'd be market, maybe a different product. It would have a different product name. That's fine. You know, and when you do the deal with the first company, you call that out. You say, well, you have the right for this category in this way, and you have the right to license it somewhere else. And then we're like, yeah, we don't care about that. That's not going to hurt us. But if they look at it and go, oh, that's going to hurt us. They're not going to do the deal. Okay. But don't think that licensing it to five companies, 
selling the exact same thing in the exact same places ain't going to happen. Okay. Um, it doesn't make any sense. And be really happy that it's a big ass company that you license to. Um, Peter B said, hello, everyone. Hello, Peter. Um, okay. Mike says, hi, Andrew. Do you have any advice for people who want to do this and have a passion for licensing, but everyone in your life tells you it's stupid? Uh, kind of a buzzkill, eh? Okay, great. I, I I love that you brought this up because some of you, the rest of you might have this, um, these people in your life too. Don't freaking talking talk to them about your ideas if they're unsupported. I, you know, it was really sad. I remember talking to this one gentleman and um, he didn't end up signing with the program. I, I could tell he was, uh, he, 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 he was a very poor um, gentleman. He didn't have much money together. And I could tell he had some um, kind of confidence issues and stuff. And, but nice guy, really clever invention too. And he kept going on and on about his mom. And he would he told me like these terrible things his mom was saying to him about his inventing and about him in general. And I was just like, what kind of messed up parent is this woman? I was just like, that's just messed up. So that's that was the ultimate. I was like, I got off that call and I was depressed because I'm like, here you got this guy. He's already he's got kind of like uh, self-confidence issues, but he's creative. And his mom's just beating the hell out of him. I said, dude, I said, I know you don't have the money to sign up with our coaching. Watch all our free stuff. Read our book. And I gave him some free advice. And I said, um, don't share any of this with your mom. And other people in his family were super hypercritical and just like ter say terrible things to him. Don't, don't, don't share any. Don't even tell him you're doing it anymore. Okay. And, and I said, be honest. You need to get out. You need to get out of that environment because that's just going to wear you down. Now, for others of us, that's not the situation. You're not living in poverty and you have this mom that's, you know, probably upset too because she's in poverty and she's just beating you up. And I mean, it's like if a parent doesn't know how to support themselves and can be positive about life in general, and then they just take that out on their children, it's just like it's just generational, you know, poverty and despair. It's just, but some of us, that's not the case. You're in a family, you're doing okay, but you just got your super critical Uncle Jimmy or your spouse is really critical or they're, they're, or, or sometimes they're worried like, oh, you want to work on these products. And in their mind, they're thinking you need to spend a ton of money to do this because they think the only way you can bring a product to market is to sell it yourself, manufacture it and sell it. So they're freaking out going, oh, I don't want maybe their spouse. You know, you got Sally and she's a Bob, I, 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 Bob I, or her husband or whatever their name is, sweetie, whatever he's calling them. I don't want you risking our life savings on this. And he can say at that point, well, no, this licensing thing is very low risk financially. I just got to invest some time as a very high potential return. Oh, okay. But if they're then still not supportive, just don't talk to them about your, your product. Okay. So I know it's really basic advice, but um, do not, if they're telling you it's stupid, whether your idea is stupid or licensing is, how would they know if freaking licensing is stupid? Have they ever worked on licensing anything? Have they seen all our students licensing up? They don't know what they're talking about. They're just talking out of their ass, you know? So Mike, don't share with those people. Be, you know, get on here. We're positive. Um, watch some of our YouTube shows. We're positive. And we're not like get rich quick positive because that's not us. We're realistic positive, right? Talk to some other inventors, you know, watch some of the success stories we've had on YouTube with some of our students. You'll feel energized regardless of whether you become a student. And don't talk to your family about it if they're critical. Now you got... Now you got the other side of it. Sometimes family is overly positive. 
you know, and now one thing that overly positive family will say, and just take it as a compliment, but don't do what they tell you. They see your idea and they go, oh, this is a great idea. You better get a patent on that. I can't tell you how many inventors have run out. And the first thing they freaking do is get a patent because their family told them to do so. But their family know, knows nothing about bringing a product to market or licensing. What they really mean is that's a great idea. You better get protection. You're going to get ripped off. Take it as a compliment, but don't freaking do it. Instead, file a provisional patent application for $60. You can use our smart IP software to do it. It's only $99. Be smart. But consider that a compliment. But consider it an ignorant compliment. It's nice that they thought your idea was so good they wanted you to protect it. But telling you to run out and spend all that money on a patent was bad advice. Okay? And anything I share with you today should not consider legal advice. Please consult your attorney if you're looking for legal advice. So I really went off on that, Mike. So Mike, just remove that. Maybe they're positive in every other area of your life, but they're critical of your licensing and your inventing efforts. Just don't talk to them about it. And I don't know if I offered you any great advice there, but um, I maybe just to say that I've talked to other inventors have that same issue. So just keep moving forward. Um, thanks, Mike. He's called me a rock star. I think you call me a rock star before I answer that question. So thank you. Uh, <laughs> um, Waleed said, hi, Andrew, can I license my idea to a company in Taiwan? Yeah, you absolutely can. So this is my take on it, guys. You are more than likely going to be licensing to a company that sells in the United States and in Europe. You're probably not gonna be licensing to a Chinese company that just sells in China. There's no way to protect the intellectual property there, okay? So, but it, I don't care if it's a European company, if it's a Taiwanese company, if it's a freaking Chinese company or an American company. And if they have, here's the litmus test, which isn't really true of Chinese companies, except for those ones dumping crap on, on just Amazon. That's not a real company, all right? Um, if they have distribution in the US, you, they are a potential licensee. They have to go by patent laws in the U.S. and they have a team in the U.S. and they're manufacturing and have distribution to stores in the U.S. That's how you qualify or or Europe. Okay. Now I mentioned this I think a couple live streams ago. I had and never since, but we had two students licensed to Chinese companies that had distribution in the U.S. One licensed an entire toilet to a Chinese company, but 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 they had distribution at Home Depot. They were selling toilets at Home Depot. Very unusual, okay? And then another guy, a Canadian guy, licensed to a Chinese company that sold um, camping products. He licensed like eight products all at once to a Chinese company to make camping products, but, but, but they had distribution to major retailers. But do not be showing to Chinese companies unless they have distribution in major retailers in the United States. That's a waste of time. Don't go on Alibaba and go, oh, is this company that coming? No, don't do that, okay? Um, show two companies. And to me, it's basically Ameri companies that are selling a lot of product in the U.S. or in Europe. And most of the time, it's going to be the U.S., to be honest with you. And a lot of those same – so it could be a really big European company. There's tons of big European companies, tons of big Asian companies that are selling in the U.S., but they have U.S. headquarters. They have – corporate headquarters there. They have marketing people can call and there are going to be Americans picking up the phone. That's fine. Okay. But you're not going to be licensing this to a different company in every country around the world. 
you know, that's, that's not really practical. Okay. You're not going to be getting patents around the world. Now, if a company is like, Hey, we sell in these 20 countries, we've had some students in that. Great. But you know what? 99% chance they will not be filing patents in those countries, but you'll have leverage on them because they want to sell in the U S only sell over here. And sometimes I've had uh, companies say this, to me, well, we're not going to pay you in Germany because you don't have patents there. And like, well, you want the U S rights. You need to pay me there too. And they're like, mm, okay, there's all sorts of tricks that we can, we can show you guys. So, um, so yeah, you can license to a Taiwan company, but I really want to see them having distribution in the U S and if they do, then, then it's great. Um, that's kind of too general. Uh, Cornell, good evening. My question is, I would like to do a licensing deal done with a, oh, a drone manufacturer. How do I approach that? Well, you, you've got to watch our channel, Cornell, but you license to a drone manufacturer. That's one of those categories. Like if you got a drone product, you got a license to a drone manufacturer. A lot of other product categories and I actually helped somebody with a drone product. I'm like, oh, you could license to a company over here that doesn't even sell drones. And it made sense for him. But sometimes people limit their list of potential licensees just to companies making more or less the exact same thing. That's not good. You, you, I, I can look at a product and go, oh, but you could go over here and over there, companies selling this or that or a different distribution channel. People really suck at that. Our coaches are great at helping our students identifying those opportunities. Um, so if you're licensing... I can't answer your question, Cornell, because I don't know your product. I don't know if it's a drone accessory or a drone itself, but our approach to licensing will work for a drone. It will work for a kitchen cutting board. It will work for an advanced medical device. It works regardless or a 10-step system. Okay. Um, Brian says, part, part one of two. I'm living in Sweden and I plan to form a non-US resident LLC with a registered agent in New Mexico due to having no annual report requirements or freeze. I didn't like the Swedish equivalent. So he's living in Sweden. He's wanting to register an LLC in New Mexico. Okay. Too many requirements. I'm wondering if it's possible to network with Europeans who have experience with non-resident LLCs formations and navigating the hurdles. Um, sorry, I don't know why I might lean forward. It'll probably get in focus in a minute here. Um, Okay, that's getting into kind of like legal territory. Why the heck is my thing all? Let me fix it. Okay, there we go. I need to pull back to fix it. Um, so first off, you can form an LLC in the U.S. if you want to, as you do your first deal. So let's say, let's say your name is Brian. So let's say your last name is Smith. So Brian Smith Designs at Gmail is your Gmail, right? They don't care if you have a company or you don't have a company. They just want a good product. So then you get further negotiations, further, further. Looks like you're going to get close to signing a contract. Oh, crap. For whatever tax purposes, legal purposes, you want to file an LLC in the U.S., I would do it then. To do it all just for licensing now, especially with the con with the confusion, you, you being in Sweden, wanting to do a U.S. LLC, I have no idea what's, what, what, what in Sweden, what the tax laws are, if you're basically evading taxes, they're like sticklers there for taxes. So I don't know what those laws are. You need to consult the tax advisor on that. Um, so you, and, and you're a non us resident. I have no freaking idea. I do know that there is one website that I like, which is free. There's a lot of really sleazy people advertising, trying to sell you LLC services for things you don't need. 
But this one gentleman, he was great. He came on, did a webinar with us, llcuniversity.com, llcuniversity.com. Really honest guy, great guy, great information on his website. You can select any state you're in that you want to file an LLC, and it gives you directions on how to do it yourself. Um, but you might have some jumping off points about New Mexico, and maybe you might find some non-resident LLC stuff on there for you, Brian. So it's llcuniversity.com. It's a good resource for you. I get nothing out of that except to help you guys. So um, I'm happy to provide that resource. Um, Kurt said, can an idea be licensed knowing there is prior art that makes an idea unpatentable? However, the product is not on the market. Um, well, I mean, so making an idea unpatentable and infringing are two different things. If there's, there can be a lot of things that are unpatentable because there's been people doing that sort of product forever. And um, after it's been in the market for more than a year, publicly disclosed, that's public domain. So if, if and this is true of huge numbers of products, guys, where people have been selling the product on the Internet or anywhere and nobody ever got a patent on it. And now that's public domain. Now, there might be 10 companies selling that type of product, but you have an improvement that makes it a little different. You can protect your improvement, but anybody can sell the base product that's been basically public domain. So um, Curtis saying, can I have an idea that can be licensed um, knowing there is prior art that makes the idea unpatentable? However, the product is not on the market. So that's not what he's saying. He's not, that would be stuff that's public domain. But if he's saying, look, I found a patent and I'm going to be violating this patent with my product, like, why would you do that? Now, the vast majority of the time when our students find something like that, we can get right around it. People are like, oh, crap, then people get around what I filed. No, most inventors and attorneys do a piss poor job of what they're protecting. And you can just find, and slides, products that are patented aren't even marketable. They don't even make sense, okay? So, but if your product makes sense and you're like, well, okay, his claims say this, this, and this. Oh, but that's not a problem. That's not a problem. Oh, this one's a problem, but I could just do it like this and I wouldn't be violating that claim. Well, then go for it. So that's that's my answer, Kurt. Hopefully that's helpful. Uh, let's see. <coughs> Sorry, I page up and page down and, and I lost my place and I kind of like to do them in order. So I'm not, people don't get pissed. Um, cause there's no way I only got five minutes left and I need, I don't think I answered everybody's question. So if I didn't answer your question, just come back at the top of the hour next Monday. Okay. And cause I am doing them in order. All right. So that's, I think that's fair. Um, if I was really good, I'd probably just do the ones that are more interesting, but I don't know. I, I'm a fair kind of guy, so I'm doing them in order. And you guys all ask really great questions. So um, but now I'm just trying to figure out where the hell I am. Okay. The other part of Frank's question is looking for a partner slash company, taking them from an idea to product licensing. Is there such company? I have heard of Davison, but they're also too expensive. So I can't talk. You mentioned a company name. I never make a reference to any company in particular, but I can speak from my personal experience. I have never seen an inventor in the 23 years I've been doing InventRight and the 14 years I've been, I did my Inventors Association in Silicon Valley with students in 65 countries. Any point in time, we'll have like 350 to 500 students. I have never met an inventor and all the people that we do sales calls with that have talked to invention promotion companies. I have never met a single inventor ever that has licensed a product that way. 
So these companies that say, we'll do it all for you. You don't have to do anything. I've, that's okay if you don't have the money, Frank. I've never seen any success personally, I can say that, with any invention promotion company. I've never talked to an inventor that has ever licensed anything with an, invent, an invention promotion company got them licensed. So the Federal Trade Commission warns against invention promotion companies. The Patent Office does. I think there's a reason for that. Okay. Um, if you don't want to do the work, just quit right now. Now, the work is a fraction of the work that you have to do when you're venturing a product. It's They're going to handle the money, the work, everything, the manufacturing, the sales, but you got to do the job to close that one deal. If you don't want to do that work, just quit right now. And if you look for somebody to do that for you, to close a licensing deal for you, you're just going to find an endless list of shysters. Okay. But I never talk about any companies in particular ever. Um, and there's solid reasons for that. Um, uh, fence first. If I have more than one idea, can you guys tell me which one I should do first? This program isn't exactly cheap and I would want to have the best chance possible. Yes, absolutely. We can go over several ideas and you and your coach can go over them. They can go upsides and downsides to number one, number two, number three. Sometimes they'll be like, well, I don't have enough information. On number three, this is what I need you to find. Then you come back, we'll look at it together. Okay. So they're not wizards. They can't just look at every single product and go, well, I just know that one's good. That one sucks. Sometimes there's litmus tests, there's filters they can put it through and they give you some opinions. But then we like, but for us to really understand this product, I need you to find this and this, and then we can make a proper decision. You know, that's the professional way of looking at it. Now, if you think you're going to license every product you work on, you're mistaken. Nobody licenses every product they work on. So when you're with us and you work really hard on a project or two or three, if you're motivated during that six months, um, you will now know the process and now you work on another product, another product. And if you only spend two, $300 per project, 75 bucks for a provisional, a few bucks for a sell sheet virtual prototype, you'll always have the financial bandwidth to move on. So we're not just about helping people license their products. We're about teaching people through real life experiential learning how to license so they can license the rest of their life. So hopefully that makes sense. Um, let's see. Uh, let's see. Let me find one I haven't answered from somebody. Um, Rugby342 says, should I send my sell sheet to a salesperson or the director of product development within the company? Neither, really. Sales can be okay, but you really want to go after marketing managers. And then you can get a hold of salespeople because you can always talk to them. So that's good. But usually not a director of product development. Some companies it might be, but they're usually the, you know, they're you're kind of doing their job. You're making them look bad. But it really depends on the company. If you, I would always go for marketing. And then you go for sales and then you're like crickets for all those. Then you could go for a director of product development. But I always make a marketing manager my um, my first go to then sales and then uh, a product development manager. But sometimes they're the, the right ones in some companies, but I wouldn't go for them first. Oh, no. Cornell says, because I'm flat broke, should I focus more on an outright sale than a license deal? Absolutely freaking not, Cornell. You will never get anything close to what your product is worth if you do an outright sale. Don't even freaking bring it up. You're going to get way more money if they're paying you a royalty. As they make money, they pay you a royalty. 5% is the most common over time. And realize these companies are big, so it can add up. Don't ever say, I want to sell you my product. I want to sell you my patent. And don't ever try to get a company to pay you. Because let's, so let's say, 
let's say it's I'll, I'll, let's say it's a product that could easily be earning a hundred thousand dollars a year in royalties. Well, after five years, that'd be five hundred thousand dollars. If you ask for fifty thousand dollars up front, that will kill the deal almost every time. Maybe even ten thousand. Five thousand? Yeah, okay. Maybe ask to pay for the patent. So just putting things in perspective. Now, not every product's going to sell, make a hundred thousand royalties a year. So I'm just giving you perspective. Even though it's a product they can see it's going to do that well, you can, and you're asking for a bunch of upfront money, kills the deal every time. Don't do it. And I get people that are really flat broke and they're just going for a quick buck. Don't do it. You'll if you're you will make more money over time, you know. And but like I said earlier, quite often it will take them a year to get it into production, get it into the stores. And if they sense a desperation in you and you're like, well, I'm okay with being desperate. I just want five grand, 10 grand, whatever. God damn it. That's just too damn little. That's ridiculous. Don't do that to yourself. Now, if you want to make that judgment call, you can, and they might pay you something small like that, but like you could have earned, let's say it's a really limited product and over five years, you would have earned only $100,000, let's say $20,000 a year. But you settled for $8,000 because you wanted to sell it outright because you're broke and you desperately need the money. If you want to do that, you can. I don't think it's a smart decision. $100,000 is like, it's like 10 times more than $8,000. You know, it's more than 10 times than $8,000. So guys, wrong way to do it telling you that's not the way it works. Don't make it up in your head. Not the way it works. You'll hurt yourself every time. Now, if you're like, hey, I'm going to be out in the street if I don't get this $8,000, but then it's kind of like, why are you doing licensing? You shouldn't be doing licensing if you're going to be out on the street or you can't pay your utility bill. Now, if you're just really thin, but you're getting by every month, okay, that's fine. But um, yeah, just don't do that. But thank you for your your, uh, honesty, Cornell. I appreciate it. Uh, we're three minutes over, but I'll answer this last one. What are industries of product ideas that are not good for licensing? Um, I don't think there's any particular ones that aren't good for licensing. Um, I mean, God, it's, if, if a company sells a product and you can show them that a new product and they can sell it and you can earn a royalty, I've had students license in all sorts of weird areas. I had this gentleman, he licensed a, a giant boring driller. He was in the drilling industry. This is the size of a Volkswagen bug. He licensed that. I've had students license CPAP-related uh, machine stuff, you know, when people have a problem breathing when they're sleeping. Um, all sorts of industrial products, farming implements. Um, these are the, some of the weirder categories. Um, it could be business-to-business stuff. It could be business-to-consumer stuff. It could be stuff for the home, automotive. It could be kitchen. It could be tech. It could be all sorts of areas. So if it's a product that they would look at and go, oh, we could sell that and you could get a royalty in every unit, you can license it. And some industries, like there's just nobody really showing them stuff. You can go in these dinosaur industries sometimes or, you know, industries where people are inventing stuff all the time, like toys or kitchen or whatever. That's fine, too. Um, so I... I, I really don't have an industry where I'm like, oh, don't just don't bother. I don't have one. Um, now, you could probably give me one and I go, oh, that one would be difficult. But I don't really have one off the top of my head. So instead, I'm going to define it as if they sell a certain type of product and you have a product that would fit into their product line and they're going to sell units of it, they could pay you a royalty and it could be a potential licensing deal. So it's it's very, very broad. 
Um, I couldn't get to everybody's questions. Um, okay. Well, Skywatcher at the end said, I'm ashamed. I don't know how to start a proper conversation with a company about my product. Yeah, most inventors don't. So I would recommend keep watching our YouTube show, Skywatcher, and everybody, you know. So down below, if you could do me a favor, if you appreciate me answering questions for a full hour, um, down below, click on the subscribe button, click on the notification button, give me a thumbs up, okay, and watch more of our YouTube shows. Um, and if you page up in the chat, you'll see um, some links to our inventright.com, our free resources page, our contact us page. If you want to contact us to learn more about our programs and talk to Sylvia or Dana, they're super friendly. We're never pushy. So if you just want to talk to them about programs. I'm not ready yet. You can tell them, but I want to understand how you guys help. Go ahead and book a call with them. Um, and I just want to remind you guys, take care and keep inventing. Uh, don't blow a ton of money with licensing. It's not necessary. That was our theme today is to save you money. So hopefully I gave you some tips to do that. See you guys. Bye.